Let me say welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Brad Russell. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and it's uh, just an honor to get to, to step in and to serve you this morning by sharing God's word. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, as you're doing that, let me just say thank you, uh, uh, church. Uh, it, it's been about a year, a little over a year now that I've been among you and a part of you and get to serve. I just want to say thank you. Um, you guys are a unique place, uh, and it, you guys are so welcoming and it just a family and a great community of faith to be a part of. And, and it's just been an amazing, an amazing year. Uh, and I'm looking forward for what else God wants to do. Um, this place is awesome. It really is. You guys are some of the most welcoming people and some of the, the have so much of the great hearts to build God's kingdom and to advance the gospel. And, and it's just exciting uh, to be along in the journey and in the ride, if I can say that, the ride with you, all right? Uh, so Hebrews uh, chapter 12, speaking of a ride and a journey, uh, the Christian life uh, is very much a journey, isn't it? And following Jesus for a lifetime requires endurance, right? Uh, scripture tells us that. We don't have to just experience life to know that. Scripture says, hey, the Christian life requires endurance um, because when whatever uh, happens in your life and whenever it happens, you're going to need some tenacity, right, some endurance to keep running. And we want to be people who stay in the race. We don't want to be people who falter before the finish line, do we? Uh, 1983 was a really good year, because Brad Russell was born. <laughs> but a little bit besides that, 1983 was uh, an interesting year in the life of an event that happens every year in Australia. It's called the Ultra Marathon. Now, catch this. This Ultra Marathon happens as a group of people who run from Sydney, Australia, all the way to Melbourne, Australia. It's 875 kilometers long, or if you like uh, me and want the English measurement, that's 543.7 miles, right? I've heard of people running marathons, and I think, what's wrong with you? Like, we, do you need an MRI to prove that you have a brain? Like, why? I, I know I've just insulted the few marathon runners in the room, but really, like, who wants to run that long, right? Uh, I mean, come on. But, I, you know, even, even a half marathon or a 5K is like, okay, we're stretching it. How about we just run from here to there and we call it good, right? That's, that's me, right? But this is an ultra marathon, 875 kilometers. It would take some of the world's best athletes six to seven days of running, to finish. And these guys would be trained. Uh, they would train years to do this. They would be equipped with some of the most expensive gear. They would have sponsorships from Nike and Reebok and Under Armour and, and whatever else. But in 1983, there was this, there was a commotion um, before the race get, got started because this older gentleman, right, showed up in coveralls, work boots. He was 61 years old, and his name was Cliff Young. 
And, and people started to take notice to him and, and just kind of thought, well, oh, that's cute. Grandpa's here for his son, for grandson or dad's here for his son. Until he walked up to the table and signed up to get a bib number. And all of a sudden, then the media started to take notice of this 61-year-old man by the name of Cliff Young. He was a sheep farmer. And as people began to interview him, they were like, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm a sheep farmer. I have 2,000 head of sheep over several acres of land. And some days it'll take me three days to run that, those entire acres of land chasing after those stupid sheep. Right? And so people began to take notice of this, kind of watch him. They thought, everyone started saying, how long is he going to last? Right? Surely. I mean, he didn't even show up wearing the right shoes. There's no way he can finish this race. And sure enough, the race began and everyone took off and there was Cliff and he had this slow little shuffle and all the runners took off ahead of him. And so the next morning, so those, those runners ran throughout the night and the next morning the media, you know, was like, okay, let's check in. Where's Cliff Young? And what they discovered is that the r- normal runners, those who had, who, uh, who had trained for this and had heard about this and maybe even ran it before, everyone knew you ran 18 hours and then you slept six hours. Except for Cliff. Poor Cliff didn't stop running through the night. And so people began to pay attention to him. Apparently no one told Cliff that you should sleep or rest. He just kept running. He just kept running was the statement over and over by the media as they were following this. And by the last night, Cliff had passed all of the world-class athletes. In fact, not only did he pass them, he won first place. Not only did he do that, he broke the ultramarathon record by nine hours. He ran 875 kilometers in five days, 15 hours and four minutes. Not knowing that he was supposed to sleep during the night, they interviewed him and said, what were you thinking? And he said, I just imagined that I had all 2,000 head of my sheep and a thunderstorm was coming and I had to get them back to the barn. And so I just kept running. At the end of the race, they gave him a $10,000 check. He had no idea that there was a prize. So he cut the check, he, he, he took the money and he split it between the next five people with him. He gave it all to those next five people because he said they're the ones who worked their entire life for this. He immediately became a national hero. But the thing that stood out to me was the statement, he just kept running. He just kept running. If we think about the Christian life, that's what we've got to do. If I was thinking about what is the Christian life, like if we boil it down um, to what it is, because we can make the Christian life into a whole lot of things that it's not. I think a good simple statement of the Christian life is this. The Christian life is a relentless, passionate pursuit of Jesus. It's relentless because Yes, there are going to be hard times and there are going to be obstacles and there are going to be things that come in your life that you weren't expecting and you've got to be relentless. That speaks of tenacity. That says, I will be relentless. I will not let anything stop me from running after Jesus. It's got to be passionate, right? Passion is not the same as emotion, although passion can cause emotions. Passion speaks of a heart unwavering. That's why we talk about the passion 
week of Jesus' life. He had a goal in mind, the cross, and he was unwavering in his passion for the glory of God and for the salvation of humankind, right? It's relentless, it's passionate, and it's a pursuit. It's a pursuit, right? We are chasing after Jesus. See, when we become a follower of Jesus, God doesn't, we don't come seeking after God, do we? In fact, Scripture says that's, that we don't. It says, Scripture says no one seeks after God. And so God has to come for us, right? Because in our sinful state, we don't even want the things of God. And so God comes after us. But something happens. A, a little game is played where God comes after us, calls us from our sin, and then says, tag, you're it. And then he takes off running the other direction. And that's what being a disciple is, right? Following hard in the feet, in the path of Jesus. It's a relentless, passionate pursuit of Jesus. It's a game of tag where we're chasing after Jesus. And to do that, you will need endurance. The problem is endurance is not something that we hear a lot about. We live in a culture that does not celebrate endurance, waiting, and patience. We want everything right now. I mean, I am one of those people who loves Amazon Prime because it comes in two days, right? But like everyone else, we're like, two days, I want it tomorrow. And so Amazon just said, we're going to give you one day shipping. It's like, seriously? Soon you'll click a button and there will be, here's your Tide Pods, right? Like, I need them that bad, that fast, but we want everything quick. We want everything without resistance. And so how do we build up endurance? The writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, we are running this race, the writer tells us, and he tells us how we can have endurance. He says, hey, you're going to need endurance. You're going to need some relentless passion. You're going to need some tenacity to, to live, to run after Christ. And so he gives us a few things of how we can build that endurance. The first thing he says is that there, you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, the first thing we need to realize is that we are not alone in this race, right? Hebrews chapter 11 obviously comes before Hebrews chapter 12. Then, you know, I learned that by third grade, that 11 comes before 12. Maybe fifth grade. I don't know. I was a slow learner, right? And in Hebrews chapter 11, we call that the great hall of faith. And the passage is full of people that we can look to that says, by faith, so-and-so did, and faith, so-and-so, and by faith, and by faith, and by faith, by faith, by faith. And so the writer then comes in verse 1, and he says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We have a people that have left a legacy and an example for us. We're not, we are not the first who have ran the race. All of us, 
no matter what generation we hold on to, right? We're not the first generation to live and to love Jesus radically. Sometimes we think it was, it's only our generation that loves Jesus. No. There have been generations behind us and there will be generations ahead of us until Christ returns. And we get to stand on their shoulders. We get to build on what they have already laid. But more than that, we're surrounded. We are not alone in this race. What the writer is also telling us is that we shouldn't run the race alone. He's given us his church, his community to be a part of. See, being a part of a church is more than just attending, more than just hearing, and then leaving. A church is a place that we are to be known, and we are to know each other, because we want to run the race together. If you've ever been to like a cross-country meet, especially like a a college cross-country meet, they they compete in teams, which seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Because only one person gets first place. But they work together as a team because, hey, they want to win first, second, and third and get the most points for their entire team. Not only that, they run together. If you have been to a cross-country meet, you'll see these really good teams, these good cross-country teams. They'll, They'll huddle up and they'll bunch up in a pack. Right, And if you listen, they'll be talking to each other. They'll be like, hey, you can do this. Come on. We got your best time, best lap. Let's do it. We got it. This one. We got it. Come on. Keep going. Keep running. Hey, don't fall behind. We got this. And they'll run together almost all the way to the very end, and then they split. Then they just book it, right? Because it helps them. Because they know they need encouragement. So is the Christian life just like that. At the end, we stand before God, and we're only accountable for our own actions at the judgment but we can't make it alone. Scripture says that three chords is better than two or one. They hold up stronger, and we need each other. Scripture says iron sharpens iron. We need other people in our life more than just, hey, that was a good sermon. We need people that will look us eyeball to eyeball and say, hey, I know you, you know me. How are you living for Jesus? How are you doing loving the people in your life? How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? That's why it's so important that we're a part of, whether that's a Sunday morning Bible study or a Wednesday night small group, or we just get with a group of Christians and we're known. We're not alone in this race and we need each other. The second thing the writer tells us is that we need to throw off the extra weight. Look, he says in verse Uh, One, he says, lay aside every weight. In the original language, that lay aside is much more dramatic. It's like throw it off. It's like taking something off, ripping it off, and throwing it to the side. And and the image goes all the way back even to the Greeks where they would literally strip everything off to run a race. We don't want that, right, this morning. But we don't want anything holding us back. Anything that holds us back needs to go away, right? And, and if we were talking about athletes, right, weights are a good thing for athletes. Runners will use weights to get muscle, right? They lift, they pump a lot of iron, like me. You can see that, right? Like, a, hang on, hang on, right? Uh, right, they pump a lot of iron, right? But if someone was coming to the cross-country meet, right, and they had a 20-pound dumbbell in each hand, and they, were, you, and they were getting ready to run, we would look at them and go, they're not intending to win the race. 
See, weights, I think, are different than the sin that comes next that he talks about. Weight is good things that hold us back. And think of it this way. If I was going to run a marathon, an ultra marathon, like, I might be tempted to bring some stuff with me. If someone said it was going to take six to seven days, <laughs> I need to pack some food. I need to pack some water. I got to use the bathroom. I, there's things I need to do, right? So I, I, I might be tempted to, to carry a weight full of some things that are not bad things, like they could be good things, right? I mean, for example, if I was running an ultra marathon in Australia, where every creature and plant, it seems like, in Australia is intent to kill you, if you've looked at that, then I would definitely bring a first aid kit, right? Because I know me, right? I'm going to get bit, I'm going to get stung, I'm going to trip, I'm going to fall, right? And if I was running the race, I mean, look at me, you can't see I got long sleeves on, but uh, this guy, he doesn't tan, he tomatoes, right? So I, I need some sunscreen, right? If I was running uh, a race for a, a long period of time, I, would, I know I would bring an extra pair of shoes. Because the worst thing to do is like if it's raining and then your shoes get wet, oh, running in wet, wet shoes is one of the worst feelings ever, right? You know, and you, you might want to bring some snacks with you or, or, or something like that, right? And not any of these things are bad things. They're all good things. But they'll hold us back. In the business culture, it's been said that good is the greatest enemy of great. I think we can take that spiritually and say, good is the greatest enemy of the gospel. Sometimes the thing that holds us back isn't sin. Sometimes it's things that are just good, that have taken a shift and been moved out of balance and now has taken a priority. They've consumed us. A job. Our family. Extracurricular things. Vacation. Right? Relationships. None of those are bad things. Nowhere in scripture does it say not to do those things. But when those things become the main thing, they hold us back. And if we were to wear a backpack and run an ultra marathon, eventually those things would become a burden that would bend us over and hold us back. If it's in God's way, it needs to go. The third thing that the writer says, that's the fourth thing, there we go. The third thing that the writer says is that we need to kick off the clinging sin. Uh, I love this sentence because this sentence is a fun sentence to translate. And so different translations translate it in different ways to get the original meaning of it, right? Some sentences, like the, the sin that's closely clinging, and I think of like when you get something stuck on your shoe, right? And it's like maybe like you gum and then a rock, and you're trying to like walk with that, and it's like, oh my goodness, and you're like trying to kick it off, right? That's, that's some, sin, it clings to us, sin clings, right? Other translations translate as like entangles, right? There's sin that entangles. I used to work uh, in, in high school, at the end of my high school in, uh, years, uh, on a farm. And the worst day in the summer was when the owner of the farm would come to us and say, boys, I need you to go out so-and-so and clean the fence row. 
oh, let me do any other kind of job than clean out the fence row. But if you've ever come across a, a fence that's been left on its own, you'll see that these weeds will entangle up into the fence. And if, they've le- if they're just left there, they'll eventually like pull it down and break it. That's what sin does. It entangles around us and it pulls us down. The other translations say the sin that so easily ensnares us. As like if there's a, a trap on the path to catch an animal and we step in it. No matter what, what the sin is, the sin has to be kicked away, right? What is the sin that is holding on to you? What's the one sin? Maybe it's a sin that you are like, I, I'm completely aware of this sin, and you, but you're like, God, you can have all of these things else in my life except for this. This is mine. And you're holding on to it till your knuckles are turning white. And you're saying, no, this is mine, God. And God is telling us, if you're going to run the race and run it well, you've got to chuck that sin away. You've got to give that sin up. Maybe it's a, a hidden sin. A sin that's hidden and we need the Holy Spirit's searchlight to search our heart, as David said. And show me where I've wronged you. Maybe it's what we will call acceptable sins, right? We all have acceptable sins in our life. Maybe it's a bad attitude or just being negative or gossiping or being lazy or envy or being judgmental or having pride or just being a hypocrite. And we're like, well, you know, it's acceptable because everyone has it. How dare I? How dare I ever say that any sin in my life is hypocritical when that one sin that I did cost Jesus his very life, caused God to give up his son on a cross for that sin killed him. There is no such thing as acceptable sin. And we need to throw sin away and throw it off. Guys, the tomb is empty, isn't it? It's still empty. Three days after being dead, the power of God raised Jesus from the tomb. Amen? The same power that raised Jesus from the tomb is available to you. I know there's times where there's sin in our life and we're like, I just can't get rid of it. I can't seem to have victory in this life. Hear me. Hear me, it is completely possible because the same power that brought Jesus from the dead lives inside of you through this Holy Spirit. You can have victory over sin in your life. We just have to lay it at the foot of the cross and accept what Jesus has commanded us to do. The fourth thing that we would see from this passage of Scripture, um, he says, Run the race that is marked before you. There's a race that's set before you. We need to run our race. Don't run my race. Don't run your neighbor's race. Run your race. So, so often, we are missing out on what God wants to do in our life because we're looking at someone else's life. God, I want what they have. I want, what, I want the talent that she has. And God's like, I, look at what I've given you. Stop comparing yourself to others. You'll never be able to run your race when you're trying to run someone else's race. The other thing that we would see in verse 3 
is that we need to keep our eyes on the finish line. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It says, Consider him. Consider who? Verse 2. We go back. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Wow. Wow. I wasn't a very good athlete in high school. Uh, I played basketball because I went to a Christian school. And at a Christian school, uh, every boy has to play basketball so that the the school could even have a team, right? So uh, I played. I wasn't good on offense, but I could do some defense because I was fast and I had endurance. I wish that our school would have had like a cross-country thing or something like that, so I could have done that. There was one time that I ran a race, and there was a coach there from a college university, and he was kind of talking to us, and I never remember something, I'll never forget something that he said. He said, when you get, boys, when you're running, you're going to be tempted to look down on what you're running at. Keep your eyes up. Guys, when you're running, you're going to be tempted to look to the right or to the left of you to see who's around you. Don't do that. Keep your eyes forward. Guys, you're, if you guys get ahead, you might want to look behind you and see who's, who you've take, taken the lead from. Or you might hear someone coming up behind you and you want to know how close they are. Don't do that. Every time you look down or you look to the right or you look to the left or you look to the back of you, you are slowing yourself down without you realizing it. Keep your eyes on the finish line at all times. That's what the writer's telling us. We are running a race to the very face of God. To the very face of Jesus. And if we're going to run this race, we have to keep his face in our eyes at all times. His face becomes our focus. His glory is the ultimate reason why we run. I can live this life because I'm looking to Jesus. I'm going to be with him one day. I'm going to keep running towards him. This is why we worship. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we do missions. This is why we serve. And this is why we run the race. Because of his face. Because of his face. There's a a lady that you might be familiar with. Her name is Lottie Moon. Uh, Lottie Moon was about four foot, three inches tall. Um, she was born uh, to a very wealthy f- family of farmers in Virginia. Uh, but she forsook that because she believed that God was calling her to be an international missionary to China. Now, this was late 1800s, early 1900s. This was when women didn't do those types of things. Um, she was single her entire life because she believed that that's the call that God had on her, even though she wanted to be, a, to be married. She never did. And it wasn't easy for her. In her biography, she wrote about it. She said, I pray that no missionary will ever be as lonely as I have been. Um, she gave her undivine devotion to the Chinese people. When most missionaries fled China during the Chinese-Japanese War, she remained. When the U.S. government came to her and said, you've got to get out of here, you've got to go to a safe haven, she wrote, oh, don't say that you want me to return. Nothing can make me return. China is my joy and my, light, my delight. It is my home now. 
She struggled for years trying to get people to listen to her. Here she was, this very small, white, foreign lady among all these Chinese. And there was just a little bit of like, hesitation on their part, on the Chinese part, because they didn't, they didn't trust her. It all changed one day when the government came and captured a, a pastor from a, the small church that she was helping. And they took him away, and Lottie found out where they were keeping him. And so she walked into this hut where they had, tort- they had pulled this man up, and they had beaten him. And she gets between the pastor and these soldiers, and she says, beat me instead. The witnesses say that the, the guards just freaked out. Like they, they were like, get away from us, you foreign devil. And she said, no. And she got on her knees, and a smile came off her face, and she said, beat me. The, guard, the soldiers didn't know what to do, so they dropped their swords, and they, they took off. And so she untied the pastor, and she took him to a nearby hospital. And she, out of her own money, paid for his care. When they returned back to the village where the, where the church was at, they found out that the church had just grown. See, news had spread about this weird little white girl who would die for a Chinese man. And people just kept coming and coming. In 1911, a great famine hit the area of China where um, she was living. And again, the government said, you need to leave. In fact, the missions organization she was with said, you need to go. They begged her to go. She refused. During that time, she wrote just, a pro- she was a prolific writer, and she wrote tons of letters to pastors in the United States, and it was around Christmas tra- time, begging them to give. That's why you'll hear of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering around, around Christmas. Eventually, she was able to leave. They, they finally convinced her to leave, and they got her in a boat um, to bring her home, but she never returned back to the United States. She died on that boat. They say that she literally had starved herself to death because she gave away what food she had. She weighed 50 pounds at her death. The, the Chinese nurse that was with her as she was on her deathbed said that as the time began for her to, to pass away, she began to sing, Jesus loves me. And after she had sung that song, she stretched her hands out with her eyes closed and she began to say the names of all the other believers that had gone on before her. And with each name, she would open her hands and then close her, her, her skin and bones, frail fingers together. This was the traditional Chinese greeting when they would say hello to each other. They would do this. And she would say each of those names and then a new name until she took her last breath and the name that was on her last breath was Jesus. And she never opened her hands. The nurse that was with her is convinced it was at that moment that she saw the face of Christ. You see, Revelations 22, verse 1 says, 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which is its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The, the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. And isn't that all wonderful? Right? It's all wonderful. Verse 3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The streets of gold, the pearly grates, the mansions, the tree of life, the water that's flowing, it's beautiful, isn't it? But verse 4 tells us something that I think is going to make heaven what it's all worth. It says, they will see his face. Guys, we're running a race to the very face of God. We will see his face. And I don't know about you, but when I come into heaven, I want to have been running so hard for so long as God would give me life that when I come in, I would fall on my knees in exhaustion. And I would raise my head and see his face. Oh, let us be people who will run the race with endurance. Will you stand? Father, Lord, we just praise you this morning that we are called to the race. How amazing is it that you would call us sinners to your race to run after you. And Lord, my prayer is that every person in this room would run hard after you. Lord, that you would give them the endurance and the strength, the passion and the resolve and the relentlessness to not give up. And Lord, when they do, when they trip, when they, when they stop for just a moment, would you give them through your Holy Spirit comfort to keep running Lord, if there, is, if, there, if there is need in their life for Christian community, Lord, would they seek that out today? Lord, if there is something in their life that's a good thing, but it's become the main thing and it needs to go away, would you give them courage to put it back in its place? God, if there's sin that someone needs to repent of this morning, would your spirit speak to them? And oh, Lord, would you give them endurance to seek your face.